And as you're doing that, I want to, first of all, welcome you to the Austin Stone Community Church. We're glad you're here. I know there's a lot of things you guys could be doing on a Sunday morning in the summer in Austin, Texas, and so we're glad that you've come and joined us. But I want to introduce somebody to you. Um, He's a good friend of mine. He is one of my heroes in the faith, one of the men that I look up to and have for a really long time. He is the president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, uh, which is a seminary that I attend. I'm getting my doctorate at, and so um, he is a brilliant man. He's a phenomenal preacher, which you're about to see, but more than that, he's an amazing man of God, an amazing husband, an amazing dad. And so he's written up several books. I want to tell you about a couple of them. His most recent is his book, God on Sex, which is just a biblical look at God's view of sex. It's an excellent book. And another one uh, is 10 Who Changed the World. And I just recently read that one. And it just goes through 10 lives uh, of folks that have changed the world through the gospel. Just 10 ordinary people that changed this world for the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're going to enjoy Dr. Danny Aiken this morning, an amazing man of God. Would y'all make him feel welcome this morning? Father, thank you. Well, good morning, and uh, it is good to be here at uh, the Stone. I have looked forward to this because I've known of your church for a number of years, and then when Matt uh, began his studies at uh, Southeastern, uh, the Lord just knit our hearts immediately, and we've had him preach in chapel. He's coming back again next February. And and one of the things I love so much about this church is you have the same passion uh, for the nations and the fulfilling of the Great Commission that is true of Southeastern Seminary. And so there's just a natural bond that exists there. Let me also say that uh, this seminary that you help support exists for you. And uh, so let me tell you something that we're doing right now that maybe some of you would be interested in. Uh, a number of you as college students probably are familiar with what are called MOOC classes, Massive Open Online Courses. And if you go to our website, uh, within a matter of five minutes, you can be taking a class on biblical interpretation on hermeneutics and it's the exact same lectures that I delivered uh, in a live classroom setting several years ago. Almost 3,000 people are taking the class right now. Uh, Of course, as a massive open online course, it doesn't cost you a dime. You can work through the notes that we make available in our online venue. You can watch the lectures. If you want, you can read the textbooks. You can write the papers. You can take the exams and it costs you nothing and And again, it is a class on how to rightly interpret the Bible. So go to Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary's website. You'll see it scrolling there, and you could enroll in that class, and we would love to have you as a part. It's just a way for for us to serve uh, those who pray for us and those who love and support us. This morning, uh, if you have your Bible, join me in the book of Philippians, chapter 2, and we're going to give our attention to the first 11 verses, a passage that is easy to give the title, The God Who Came Down. Philippians, chapter 2, beginning with verse 1 and reading through verse 11. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, 
did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. My wife Charlotte, who is here with us this morning, she and I got married when we were very young. Uh, I was 21 and, and she was 19. And uh, looking back on it, I have no doubt that for us it was uh, the right time to go ahead and to get married and to join our lives together. And yet, at the same time, I, I now realize more than ever I had a lot of growing up to do. I had a lot of maturing to do. And as a result of that, we had some uh, interesting things occur in the first couple of years of our marriage. Uh, one particular thing stands out uh, one Saturday evening. Uh, my wife had put on our table for dinner that night some really good-looking sandwiches, and then she dropped on the table this Tupperware thing. And when you opened it up and looked inside, if you had the aid of a magnifying glass, you might think what was in there once resembled potato chips. But when you put them in your mouth, they were so stale, you really weren't sure what they were. And so I, I looked at her and I said, honey, I don't like these. These are too small and they're stale and I'd like to have some new potato chips. And, and my wife, who for whatever reason early in our marriage was committed to being inducted into the, uh, the, the frugality hall of fame, she, she, she looked at me and she said, well, um, when, that, uh, when, when those are gone, you can have some more. And I looked at her, and, and I, I thought very quickly, and I, I came back, and I said, well, well sweetheart, uh, honey, um, I came by the pantry on the way in here, and I saw in there on the way a brand new bag of Lay's potato chips that clearly have never been touched by human hands, and, and I would like to have those. And she looked at me, and she said with a sweet smile, well, like I said, sugar dumpling, when... when, when when that container is empty, you can have some others. And so I did something a man would only do in his first year of marriage. I stood up from the table, I took her Tupperware thing, and I dumped those potato chips in her kitchen floor. Oh, easy, ladies. I know, I know. I know, I understand. Such a man ought to die. I'm very much aware of this. Uh, it gets worse. I said, um, <clears throat> this one's empty now. Why don't you go get the others? Oh, I know, I know, I know, I know. Believe me, I, I know. In fact, uh, I'm sure you're wondering, did she go get the others? No. No, in fact, she didn't do a number of things around our house for a couple of weeks, best I remember. It, 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 was, not a, it was not a good time. And, and immediately... I came to understand the wisdom of Philippians chapter 2, and in this context, particularly verse 2, where it says, uh, you want joy? Uh, be of the same mind, uh, have the same love, be in full accord, be of one mind. I teach theology along with preaching and Bible interpretation at the seminary. And when I teach theology and we come to the doctrine of Christology, the person and work of Christ, 
Uh, I always walk our students through four passages of Scripture. It takes about three weeks because they are so fundamental and so foundational to our thinking rightly about who Jesus is and what Jesus accomplished for us. One of those texts is John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, what we call John's prologue. Because there the emphasis falls upon the fact that Jesus is the God of the incarnation. Many of you know some of those key verses. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Another passage is Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, because there the emphasis falls upon the fact that Jesus is the God of creation. In fact, verse 15 tells us he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things have been made. And then a third text is found in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, where there the emphasis falls upon the fact that he is the God of revelation because there we are taught that God many times and in many ways spoke through the prophets of old. But in this last day, he has spoken his definitive and decisive word in his Son. And then the fourth text that we examine is the one that we're going to look at this morning, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, because there the emphasis falls not so much on him being the incarnate Son of God or the creator of all things or the revealer of God's will, but here the emphasis falls upon his humility. In fact, it would not be too strong to say the emphasis falls upon his humiliation. And so what I want us to do this morning is walk through these 11 verses, magnificent verses, and here's how it really works out or breaks down. The key verse is clearly verse 5. Look at it again, where it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. What Paul does is he describes the mind of Christ for us in verses 1 through 4. Then in verses 6 through 11, in what I believe was an early Christian hymn, Paul's going to show us how Christ perfectly lived out and illustrates this kind of mind, first through his cross and then through his crowning and his exaltation. So Paul begins in the first four verses by talking about the character of Christ, and he challenges you and me to cultivate this character, cultivate this mind of Christ. Now, being a good teacher... Paul starts on a positive, affirming word, noting four blessings that are true for every child of God there in verse 1. Look at it. So, if there is, number one, any encouragement in Christ. Number two, any comfort from love. Number three, any participation in the Spirit. Number four, any affection and sympathy. You'll notice that verse 1 begins with the word, so if, and actually in the original text, the word if appears before each of these phrases. He is not saying if, and I hope so. Rather, he is saying if, and I know so. In fact, some of the commentators on this verse would say the word since, S-I-N-C-E, would be a good way to capture what Paul was trying to say. Since there is encouragement in Christ, since there is comfort from love, since there is participation in the Spirit, since there is affection and sympathy. Paul begins by saying that there is encouragement 
in Christ. Uh, the word is our word paraclesis. We get the word paraclete from it. That is a word that Jesus used to describe the Holy Spirit. It has the idea of coming up beside someone, putting your arm around them and encouraging them, comforting them. It's interesting to note that when Paul wrote uh, Philippians, he was in prison. In fact, there are four letters that Paul wrote about the same time called the prison epistles. He wrote Ephesians, uh, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. And so Paul is writing out of a context where he is incarcerated. Uh, Paul does not know whether he is going to be released or whether he is going to be executed. And yet Paul can say, doesn't matter. Though my circumstances from a worldly perspective are pretty dire and, and uncertain, I am encouraged because I am in Christ. Secondly, says there's comfort from love. And though he may have in mind the love that we share as the body of Christ, I think he has particularly in mind the love of the Lord Jesus that he was experiencing. You know, I've been a Christian since I was about 10 years old, and I'm 56 now, so I've been a Christian about 46 years, and I learned a lot of wonderful songs and sung some magnificent hymns and songs like we did a moment ago. But if you were to ask me uh, today, Danny, of all the songs that you've ever learned, what's your favorite? That's still easy. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And Paul could say, I'm in prison, my future is uncertain, but I am comforted because I know I am loved by Jesus. Thirdly, he says, there is participation or fellowship in the Spirit. Uh, Paul may be talking about his personal fellowship with the Spirit because the Bible teaches us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 19 that when we are converted, when we are born again, we become the temple of the Holy Spirit. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit whom you have from God? You're not your own. You, you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. So maybe Paul's talking about the personal relationship he has with the Spirit. But it also may be that Paul's talking about the fellowship of the Spirit that exists within the, the body of Christ, within the family of God that unites us and brings us together. So Paul says, I'm encouraged, I'm in Jesus. I'm comforted, I'm loved by Jesus. I have fellowship with the precious Holy Spirit and I enjoy affection and sympathy, affection and mercy. All of this is mine and so much more because I belong to Christ. So out of these blessings in verse 1, Paul can now challenge us to behavior in verses 2, 3, and 4. And if you're a note taker, uh, out beside verse 2, you might want to write the word unity. And then out beside verse 3, you might want to write the word humility. And then finally out beside verse 4, you might want to write the word sensitivity. So, so the mind of Christ as it is being fleshed out, Paul would say is characterized by unity, by humility, and by sensitivity. Look at verse 2. Complete my joy. Make me a happy apostle. How? By being four things, of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind. In other words, Paul challenges the church at Philippi to be a unified church. Now, if you've ever studied the, the book of Acts and the book of Philippians, you know that this was a great church. They were a missionary-minded church. They were a very generous church in terms of giving. And yet, even in a good church, uh, they're sinners. 
fact, all churches are simply filled with repenting sinners who are seeking to be faithful to live out the implications of the gospel as they're conformed to the image of Christ. And if you go over to chapter 4, you will discover that there were two women at the church at Philippi, one by the name of Euodia, the other by the name of Syntyche. They were good women, not bad women, good women. And yet they had become uh, somewhat uh, at odds with one another. There was friction between the two of them. And so Paul challenges them there as he does here in verse 2, have the same mind, be in full accord, be of one mind. Now, listen to me. Paul is not calling in a church for uniformity. He is calling for unity. Not uniformity. He's not saying, look, you all ought to look the same, act the same, think the same, behave the same. Well, that would be dull and boring. No, he's not saying that at all. But rather, he is saying you need to be unified on on who you are and why you're here. You need to be unified on some basic foundational fundamentals of what it means to be the church. You know the same thing's true in in all of life. But again, let's take, take marriage and family for a moment. When Charlotte and I got married, very young but very much of the same mind on some very basic issues. We were committed to the fact uh, that God had called me to be a preacher of the gospel, to be a minister of the gospel, and that would be our life uh, for, for the rest of our years. We, we were very much committed uh, to the family, wanting to have four children, and God blessed us with four sons, and we were very much committed uh, that uh, she would be a stay-at-home mom when the children showed up and that she would pour her life into our kids. And, and we were very much together on some very basic fundamentals that if we were not together on, Certainly, we're going to cause a lot of strife and a lot of uh, uh, discord in our relationship. Is God calling uh, the stone to have a, a room full of people that all look alike, act alike? No. But he is saying you need to be unified on that which is most important. I also like the fact that he says there in verse 2 that we should be having the same love. Uh, I learned a few years ago a wonderful truth, and that is this. God, through his Holy Spirit can enable you and me to love people we don't like. We can learn to love people we don't like. Now you say, wait, 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 don't you like everybody? No. No, I don't. There, there, are, there are a number of people that are on my I don't like list. In fact, a bunch of them, unfortunately, are students at Southeastern Seminary. I, I need to tell you, when, when, when graduation comes and they leave, I nearly speak in tongues. I'm so excited they're gone. I mean, I, my hands go up and I'm happy because now I'm giving them back to you and you have to put up with them. But no, I, I don't like everybody. But you know what? I cannot think of anyone that I do not love. I really mean that. I, I can't think of anyone that God does not enable me to pray and seek for their very best, to to pray and seek God's blessing and God's goodness and God's well-being in their lives. And again, God can overcome our hostilities, the God can overcome our differences, and, and he can bring about a unity wherein there's the same mind, the same love, one mind being in full accord. So there there's unity that's uh, outflow of the mind of Christ. But then there's humility. Look at verse 3. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Now, some of you may have a translation that says a little bit differently, and actually I think a better way to render these ver- th- th- that, that opening phrase is this. 
Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit. Do nothing from rivalry or selfish ambition or vain conceit. Now, let's do a little definition here. What do we mean by the phrase selfish ambition? Simply this. You're the type of person who says, I must have what I want. Doesn't matter who gets hurt. Doesn't matter who gets run over. Doesn't matter who gets trampled. I must have what I want. And you just won't give in. You won't back up, back off. No, 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 no. You are determined to have your way. Selfish ambition. What is vain conceit? Well, if selfish ambition says, I must have what I want, vain conceit says, I deserve what I want. I earned it. I'm the smartest. I'm the strongest. I'm the fastest. I'm the wisest. I'm the prettiest. And I deserve what I want. And by the way, let me put a question before all of us this morning. Do do you really want uh, what you deserve? I mean, really? As you stand before a a holy God, do you really want what you deserve? The, The quick answer for Danny Aiken is no. I do not want what I deserve. I do want what God's amazing grace has made available through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, no, 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 let nothing be done through selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility... Count others more significant. Count others more important than yourselves. In fact, the idea of sensitivity of verse 4 rolls right out of the humility of verse 3. Let each of you look. The word look, by the way, is the word scope and taste in the original text. We get our word telescope, microscope. Uh, let, Let each of you scope out. Not only his own interest. No, no, no. You also scope out. The interest of others. I had the joy of performing the wedding for three of my four sons. One is not yet married, but the other three are. And in each of those wedding ceremonies, and actually I do this in every one that I ever do. In fact, I require it. Uh, I tell the couple when I meet with them, now when I do your wedding ceremony, I'm going to read Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 through 33. I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 13, and I'm going to read Philippians 2, 1 through 11. And if you will not allow me to read those passages, that's fine. I'm not doing your wedding. And I just tell them flat out, I won't do it. You say, why? Because they need to understand the love that is so beautifully described in 1 Corinthians 13. And they need to understand the beauty of marriage as a man loves his wife as Christ has loved the church and a wife falls and yields herself to the leadership of her husband. But then I read Philippians 2 because I know if they will pursue and cultivate the mind of Christ, I can promise them two things. Number one, their marriage will be a blessing. And number two, their marriage will go the distance. I can promise them that. And so when I married uh, Jonathan and Ashley, and then later Paul and Carrie, and then one month later, Tim and Anna, I read this passage and I challenged my three sons and my three daughter-in-laws, you seek to have the mind of Christ. Uh, Jonathan, Paul, Tim, don't do anything through selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, Count your your sweet wife more important than yourself. 
And then to my three daughter-in-laws, I said, don't just look to your own interest. Make sure you keep an eye also on the interest of, of this man that God has given you. And all we're simply saying is in your marriage, have this mind among yourselves, which we see so clearly in Christ Jesus. Now, then the question becomes, well, where do we most clearly see the mind of Jesus? And the answer, of course, is the cross. The cross. Verses 6 through 11, as I mentioned a moment ago, is probably an early Christian hymn. Even in English, it has a rhythmic uh, feel to it. It's really so in the Greek language. And it's very easy, is it not, to see how verses 6 to 11 divide into two natural stanzas. Stanza number 1, verses 6 through 8, the humiliation of Christ and his cross. And then verses 9 through 11, the exaltation of Christ and his crowning. And so let me quickly walk you through this. By the way, I spend two to three lectures on this one passage, 50 minutes each lecture, so about two and a half hours I spend with my students walking through Philippians 2, 1 through 11. So I'm going to give you the, the Reader's Digest version, but I think I'll be able to hit the most crucial points of the argument that Paul is making. So here he says, consider the cross of Christ, verse 6, who, speaking of Jesus who, though he was, first phrase, in the form of God. The, the ESV says the form of God. The NIV says who is in his very nature God. The word form there means essence, nature, what something really is in its very beingness. And what Paul is simply saying is Jesus existed in the very essence, the very nature, the very beingness of God. In other words, whatever it is that makes God, God, God the Son, the Lord Jesus is all of that. If God is eternal, Jesus is eternal. If God is immutable, he is immutable. If God is omnipotent and omniscient and omnipresent and holy and just and merciful and compassionate, then the Son is all of that in its fullness. Unlike what the ancient heretic Arius said, Arius said there was a time when the Son was not. Paul says there was never a time when the Son was not. And Arius said there was a time when God was not a father. And Paul says God has always and eternally been a father to the Son. He existed in the very essence, the very nature, the very form of God. But he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He did not count equality with God as something he had to hold on to as if he could lose it. Uh, he did not count equality with God as something he had to snatch at as if it did not belong to him. Unlike uh, Adam, who sought to be like God when he could never be like God, and unlike Satan, who sought to be God and he could never be God, he did not grasp, he gave. And how did he give? Verse 7, he made himself nothing. Bad translation. Bad translation. The word translated nothing there is the Greek word kanao. It literally means to empty. A much better way of saying verse 7 is he emptied himself. Now that raises a million dollar question. In the incarnation, in God the Son leaving heaven and coming into this world, into this earth, what did he empty himself of? Well, let's say, first of all, what he did not empty himself of. He did not empty himself of his deity. 
God the Son did not cease to be God. He did not cease to be divine. Now, to say it in a way that I think you'll be able to easily remember, he did not surrender his deity, but he did for a brief period of time surrender his glory. I often say it uh, like this. He became, as it were, God incognito. He became deity veiled in flesh. And by the way, Jesus pretty much says it exactly like that in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. There on the night in which he is betrayed, he gets alone with his father and he prays this prayer. And here, verse 5, John chapter 17, verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. In the incarnation, he did not lay aside his deity. He did for a brief time lay aside his glory and he became, if you like, God incognito. But you know what? In this text before us, the emptying is so easily and beautifully explained leading up to the cross. Just walk through it with me there in verse 6 and verse 7 and verse 8. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. How? Taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. He even died the death of the cross. Theologians often refer to this as the great condescension. So what do they mean by that, Danny? They mean this. He was in heaven and he came to earth, but he didn't stop there. He came to earth and he became a man, but he didn't stop there. He became a man who became a servant, but he didn't stop there. He became a servant who died a death, but he didn't stop there. He died the most shameful and humiliating death known in the ancient world. He died the death of a cross. We don't really feel what we should feel anymore, do we? We really don't. You see, today people put crosses on the top of buildings. People wear crosses around their neck for jewelry purposes. And yet if you were to want to somehow make the impact today that Paul was making when he wrote these words, what you really ought to do is go somewhere, find a jeweler. You'd have to find someone to make this for you because no one has this anywhere. And you would ask that juror, I tell you what, I would like for you to make for me a little electric chair. And I'm going to begin to wear around my neck a little electric chair because... The cross was like the electric chair and instrument of execution. Most shameful, most humiliating form of death in that day. In fact, Cicero was a great Roman orator. And Cicero in his writing said this about crucifixion. Death by crucifixion is so shameful. A Roman citizen must never speak of it. The thought should never even enter their mind. And Paul says, Jesus, in the best sense of the word, went all the way for you and for me. Charles Weed discovered uh, some years ago some interesting parallels, both some interesting analogies and contrasts between two men in the ancient world who, who both died at the age of 33. One, of course, is the Lord Jesus. 
The other is Alexander the Great. Both of those men died at the age of 33. And so he began to meditate upon this, and he eventually penned a a poem. It's rather long. I'm not going to read all of it to you, but he he penned this poem entitled Christ and, and Alexander, and just listen to a portion of it. Jesus and Alexander died at 33. One lived and died for self. One died for you and me. The Greek died on a throne. The Jew died on a cross. One's life a triumph seemed, the other but a loss. One led vast armies forth. The other walked alone. One shed a whole world's blood, but the other gave his own. One won the world in life, but he lost it all in death. But the other gave his life to win the world's faith. Jesus and Alexander died at 33. One died in Babylon. One died on Calvary. One desired all for himself. The other himself he gave. One conquered every throne. The other every grave. Jesus and Alexander died at 33. The Greek made men slaves. The Jew made men free. One built a throne on blood. The other built on love. The one was born of earth. The other came from above. One won all the earth to lose all earth and heaven. But the other gave up all that all to him be given. And now the drama turns and we hear the rest of the story because as the son humbles himself in verses 6 through 8, the father exalts him and crowns him in verses 9 through 11. Look at it very quickly. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. It's a word that means to super exalt. It means to exalt to the highest possible place that one could be exalted. I think Paul has in mind several things by this simple phrase. I think he has in mind the exaltation of his resurrection. I think he has in mind the exaltation of his ascension. I also think he has in mind the exaltation of our Lord's current session, his current work in heaven. You say, what do you mean his current work in heaven? Do you realize today that right now in heaven... The Lord Jesus is praying for you. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25 says he can save us to the uttermost of our experiences because he ever lives to make intercession for us. It really blesses me to know that right now in heaven, my Savior is praying for me as I'm trying to faithfully teach his word. And no matter where you are this day and no matter what you're going through right now, the Bible is very clear in his work in heaven right now, Jesus Christ is praying for you. And so he has been super exalted to the highest place. And the Bible says, verse 10, bestowed on him is a name that is above every name. Now, some people believe it is the name Jesus. That was the view that I held for most of my life. Others have said it's the name Yahweh. Others say perhaps it is the name Lord. I tend to lean in that direction, though I won't fight you over any of the three because he rightly bears all three exalted names. He is the exalted Jesus. He is the exalted uh, Yahweh. He is the exalted Lord. And not only is he given a name which is above every name, verse 10, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Where, Paul? I'm glad you asked. In heaven, on earth, and under the earth, every angel, every demon. 
Every man, every woman will bow the knee to Jesus, some willingly and gladly, some at the judgment not so willingly and not so gladly. And yes, there's coming a day when every tongue will confess that Jesus the Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you realize the day that you cannot praise Jesus too much? You cannot exalt him too highly. Sometimes I have friends who say, you know what? Sometimes you folks get so hung up about Jesus, you diss the Father. It's not possible to diss the Father when you're hung up about Jesus. Because as much as you admire him, adore him, worship him, and love him, it pales in comparison to how the Father loves his Son. And by the way, if you're a note taker, Beside verse 11, right? Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 23. Because what you find out is Paul is quoting that verse here in verse 11. And in Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 23, the reference is to the Father. But now in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 11, the reference is to the Son. And you see, what can be said of the Father as God can be said about the Son as God as well. And It all comes together once more, doesn't it? God came down. God came down. And Jesus left to heaven. He did not have to leave. He lived a life that we should have lived. He died a death we should have died. He paid a penalty that we should have paid. And today he offers a gift to all we do not deserve. As the song so beautifully says, hallelujah, what a Savior. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we do love you because you first loved us and you proved it by coming into this world and serving us by dying the death that we should have died, living the life that we should have lived, paying the penalty we should have paid, and now offering us a wonderful gift, the gift of eternal life we do not deserve. And Lord, thank you so much that you paid it all. And now all we have to do is come to you in repentance and faith, extend empty hands and receive in those hands the wonderful free gift of eternal life. And then Lord, having saved us, you've made a promise to conform us to your image. Someday we will be just like you as glorified human beings. And Lord, part of that glorification is having the mind of Christ. So Lord in our marriages, in our friendships, in our church. Help us, Lord, to be humble. Help us, Lord, to seek unity. Help us, Lord, to put others before ourselves, just like Jesus did for us. We pray this all in his name. Amen.